It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. By day, I am a fee-only wealth manager on the south side of Atlanta. Um, I am a certified financial planner, a certified public accountant, and I'm a personal financial specialist, which means I'm a CPA that does financial planning. So we're here to talk about, and it seems like this is a common trend, and I, I hate to keep coming back to it, but I think every two or three months, especially in this type of marketplace, you guys need a reminder, something that will keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on the prize that is out there if you can be you know, open-minded to what is the long-term purpose of your financial dreams, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, why you're saving monthly, and, and that all this noise that goes on with the 24-hour access to, to financial information, whether it's the news channels, whether it's the magazines, the newspapers, it is noise in the grand scheme of where you're trying to end up. So that's what we're here to talk about today. We're talking about fear, the financial markets, and your money. And I'm trying to help you not to panic because just because this might be the, the dreaded R word, the recession, or this could be definitely, a, a you know, we're headed toward or we are in a bear market, you don't have to lose your mind and lose all of your, your you know, the analytical thought process that puts you into the plan that you're currently in, you don't have to leave all that behind just because we're in some dark times here for the economy. Um, I want to give you the contact information. If you want to go check out the show notes, you can go to moneyguide.com. You can also email the show. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at moneyguide.net. And um, love to have your input on the show. And, of course, you can go check us out on iTunes. Uh, what has made us so popular and put us on that featured front page of iTunes is some of your great comments. And I could not have done this show without the grassroots growth that you guys have brought. So let's talk about this. And first, I want to go ahead and apologize. This post is exactly one day late. And the reason it's late is because yesterday I spent most of the day fielding concerned phone calls. And then I was also writing an economic and market update letter to my clients. And you can imagine that letter was generated because of some of the phone calls I received. I know that there's a lot of scared people out there, and and, and I take that to heart. I really do. And it's during these volatile times that good advisors prove their worth to their clients. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And as you can imagine, it's also a stressful time for me. You can you can ask my wife that. I mean, she I've been walking around, kind of moping around, because this is not easy. I mean, when you manage people's money, and you have, you know, quite a few of your clients are in the retirement phase of their life, you're carrying the weight of their retirement on your shoulders. And, and, and that is not something that, that is easy to take in. But, but with that said, I know that there are quite a few listeners that are they're new investment advisors. Um, they're, they're students studying to become investment professionals. And there's even others out there considering making the jump. Uh, so I think this show is very beneficial because for those individuals who are thinking about getting into this field of study or just are, are that type of person that just the talking about finances, talking about investments is very intriguing to you, this is the type of stuff that will allow you to really grow as a manager of money. Even if you're not going into the field, if you're managing your own money and you're a younger person, 
bear markets don't occur that, you know, they occur usually once to twice every decade. And so since they don't occur all the time, you can learn a lot during the, these moments. And, and that's what I would tell you is that, you know, take in everything that's going on around you because uh, you can absorb a lot from this experience and it can make you a better manager, it can make you a better person handling your own personal finances because you get to firsthand see the importance of diversification. We talk about diversification for years and it's only when you get into these rough patches that you really see the value of diversification because if you go back in time, look at some of the the years out there, like in 1998 when the S&P 500 made over 28%. 2003, the S&P 500 was up, I think it was up, it was up either 23 to 28% that year because that was the year we recovered. Um, you, you would have done much better just buying like an S&P 500 fund and then being diversified. But, and, and that's, uh, a lot of people, they miss the point if you're just buying all equities you're not diversifying and following the rules that we're trying to tell you on the power of diversification. Sure, there's some great years out there that can give you a lot of banter to go to and talk about at cocktail parties about how smart you are. But what you don't have is this protection when you hit markets like exactly what we're in right now. i got to tell you, if you're one of those people sitting out there just in an all-large-cap stock or all-international or something like that, you're, you're starting to go, man, Maybe there is something to this this power of diversification because that's going to be what helps you weather this storm. That's what's going to be uh, to allow you to to make sure that you're not counting on just all one group of assets because you know there are things that are making money and you just have to make sure that you have yourself represented across enough asset classes whether it's you know, you of course got to have your traditional equities. You got to have some bonds. You got to have some cash and equivalents. You got to have a little bit of real estate, even though real estate's become a cuss word. Real estate's not a bad thing to have in the long term. You got to have commodities. You got to have all kind of exposure so that you can take advantage of what's going on. And of course, long short funds or hedge equities, whatever you want to call them, they have many different titles. Primarily for mutual funds, they're called long short funds because that's the, what Morningstar has deemed their name. But for very wealthy investors that are doing it on the private side, they're called hedge funds. So think about these things because you are getting firsthand access to seeing the power of diversification, the relationship of risk and reward because they do go hand in hand. Obviously, you know, people who thought that they had a huge ability to absorb risk because they wanted that outsized return are quickly understanding that with that great reward that you can earn, there's also quite a bit of volatility that comes with that, meaning that it's a roller coaster. You might make 40% one year, but you might give back 25 very quickly. So you've got to think about the relationship between risk and reward. And of course, the importance of controlling your emotions, because I know they're raw right now. Um, when times are good, it's easy to look at the average returns of the equity markets and jump right in. And this is what I was talking about, that risk and return. You can jump right in with the anticipation of letting your money work for you. So if you're not having to work with your back, you're not having to work with your hands, you've got your money working for you. What do you have to worry about? But once there's a sign of any trouble on the horizon, that decision starts to become cloudy and the desire for comfort and safety take over for a lot of us out there. And that's what can get you in trouble. You know, we all hear the adage that you want to buy low and sell high. But I think you're going to find out from some of the, the, the items I'm sharing today is that many of us out there do the exact opposite. A lot of us do where we're buying high 
and then we sell low. And there, there's research out there that supports this, and I'm going to go over that today. So today, if you want to go out and check out those show notes, again, that's moneyguy.com. That's moneyguy.com. You can go look out because I put some links um, and let me go over the, real quickly what these links are. I've got the cycle of emotional investing. I've, I put these all in PDF version, um, except for the link that I have to a Barron's article. But the rest of these are, are PDF um, files that I've put out there, so you can actually look at some of these things. I've got the, the cycle uh, of market emotions, and I've talked about this in the past. And, and what I think is very interesting is that we've definitely come out of, if you're going through the cycle, you first start off when a market's coming out of you know recovery mode where you have optimism, where people start to realize, hey, maybe things aren't so bad, go through excitement, then they get into the thrill because they're making money. You're not worried about things with what's going on out there in the market because everything's rosy, the economy's looking great. And this is the, the period between thrill and the euphoria that comes from making money in the market is where people start to think they are so smart. They've, they've figured out... How you know they wonder why everybody's not doing what they're doing, and then when you reach that point of euphoria, that is really the point of maximum financial risk. And this is you know it's interesting to me, and I'm going to talk about this in one of the articles that I'm going to be the Barron's article. That I'm going to talk about it at the end of the show is that if you go back in history and look at the biggest inflow of investments into mutual funds in history, you'd be surprised to know that I believe it was February of 2000. And what occurred in March of 2000, that's when we started the fall of 2000, the 2001, and 2002, the longest-running bear market since World War II. So that, that's a very scary thing that we had the longest bear market, and yet we had the biggest inflows right at the beginning of that financial disaster, that, that Internet bubble that was out there. So it truly is the point of maximum financial risk. So once things start coming down, if you're going back and looking at, say, March of 2000, is if that's the euphoria, and we start coming down, we have anxiety. And then between anxiety and we're headed towards denial, right in between there, you have people say, this is just a temporary setback. I'm a long-term investor. I can handle this. And, and I'm not so sure that we've not passed the denial stage and we're headed towards the fear. Um, because this has been going on for four straight months now. We're starting to get people that are starting to get really worried about what's going on. I imagine there's even people out there that are stopping their 401k investments, and, and they're freaking out about this. From fear, you go to, to, to desperation, panic, and then you get down there where you're so frustrated that you go, how could I have been so wrong? And then that's when you reach, you know, right before you reach depression, you've got the point of maximum financial opportunity. And I'm not willing to call a bottom yet. I think there's still a lot of volatility going on out there because... I'll tell you what I can remember from 2000 was you have to remember in 2000, well, 2002, what I remember from 2002, which is the year that we did start the recovery in October of 2002. I remember we went through 2000 where the market gave back approximately 20%. 2001, the market gave back a little over 12%. And then we come into 2002 and the market was down just awful. I mean, it was bad. I mean, it was down, I know the end of the year, I believe it closed down 22%, but you have to recognize the recovery started in the month of October, and it was good from October all the way through the end of the year. So really, we were down much further than 22% in the year of, in, in 2002. And if you can think back, if you were doing any type of financial investing back during that, that, that period, you can probably recall that 
everybody would have thought you were a fool or stupid to be doing anything with equities whatsoever. Equities and stocks became a cuss word. It's kind of like what real estate is doing going through right now. And I'm not willing to call a bottom on the real estate because there's still a ton of inventory out there. And there haven't really been any policy changes to encourage uh, a, a change in that front. So I, I don't, I'm not willing to call um, a bottom on that. But you have to recognize that real estate's not a cuss word like it's becoming in our, you know, in our society these days. And I think stocks are headed that way just as they did back in 2002 as well, where people, after a while, just go get so tired of this constant emotional drain, they just go give up and say, I'm done with stocks. I'm, just, I'm not doing this again. I'm just going to sit on the side on I can't stand investing in this stuff. I'm just never doing it again. And that's usually the best time invest. And, and I know I've used the quote a gazillion times, and y'all probably are so, so tired of me talking about Warren Buffett at this point, because I would devote the entire last podcast on it and want me to get back on topic with some other issues. But I do think it is very interesting that that quote, doing it off memory, I know about it somewhere in here, I actually have the true quote, but I think is, you know, paraphrasing, is that if you want to be, if you're trying to time the market, if you are, I'm not advocating the market, it is something just going from a contrarian viewpoint, because there's a lot of value value to being a contrarian and doing the opposite of what the average person is doing, is that you want to be greedy when others are fearful, and you want to be fearful when others are greedy. So if you can think about it, when everybody is scared to death about doing anything with investments, probably not a bad time to be out there doing something. So we go from depression, which is the point of of maximum financial opportunity. You're getting in at the bottom because just like markets are overbought, they also get oversold. And that's why you typically see that huge jump that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. You go from depression to hope to relief, and then you complete this cycle by hitting optimism once again and starting the cycle all over again. And like I said, if you look at the historical, I've got a slide here that you also can go pull up on the um, on the Money Guy website at moneyguy.com. It's, it's titled Bear Markets, an Appreciation um, the track of the bear since World War II. And um, I've got this slide. Now, I know it's ugly. It came black and white. Um, my partner, Bill, sent me this, emailed this over to me. Um, it's the sources, um, Standard & Poor's, cited in Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. And I think it's a great little slide. And like I said, I, t- I apologize for it not being you know presentation ready, but at least I wanted you to have the data. It has the the start of the the bear markets since World War II, and then um, where the bottom of those bear markets were in the dates, the number of days duration, how long those bear markets last, and then the actual percentage decline in the S&P 500. So if you go back to May of 1946 to May of 1947, it lasted 353 days is the first bear market they list here, so it's approximately a year, and it lost 23%. You know, a lot of you are probably going, man, if I could handle that. And then, you, you know, you jump in. Let's go into something a little sooner. We've got a good year, the year I was born, 1973, to from January of 1973 through December of 1974. It was a 694-day bear market, and it was down 45%. Um, from September of 76 through February of 78, that's a 525-day bear market. It lost 27%. And then if you go down here and look at something a little more recent, look at the, from uh, from July 17th of 98 through August 31st of 98. That's not very long at all. That's only about a you know a month and a half period there. The market was down 19%. I can remember I was managing money at that time, so I remember I had um. 
I had a client. He was um, I, I'll go, he was a, I was we worked with some agents at one of the firms, the sports agents that at one of the previous firms I worked with, and we had a, a football star that was um, he was probably at the twilight of his career, and he was starting to get you know think about his finances and stuff, and I, I never felt like he truly trusted us on everything. Even though I don't, we I felt like I was always doing everything in his best interest. He just never completely understood. I think he had a lot of people in his ears that were telling him he could double his money by investing in all these crazy schemes that are out there. So he never trusted the boring way that we were trying to make money. And you see that happen a lot with people who come into money. Um, you know, they, they quite often have somebody whispering in the ear how how these get-rich-quick schemes that are never really what they, they seem to be. But people listen. They like to hear that stuff. Um, so I remember I had this 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 client, he came in in August and said, I want all of my money out of the market. I just, I can't stand this. This is wrong. Y'all are losing all my money. I want it all out. And I remember feeling so sick that here he is. We'd give him back 20% in this month and a half period. And he was selling out right then. And, and I told him it was a mistake, but he still did it. So we did it, you know, because I was, you know, I got to tell you, it was a volatile situation, very nervous. We sold it. And what made me sick looking back on it is that if he'd have stayed in there like we were trying to recommend to him, by the end of the year he would have made back everything he lost and then actually been in the in the green uh, on all the money that he'd lost in that in that month and a half period of time. But, you know, emotions do crazy, crazy things to you. Think back now, even closer, this is the most recent bear market that was out there from March 24th of 2000 through October 9th of 2002, that was a 929-day bear market. And the market, the S&P 500, lost 49.1%. And, and there's a lot of you that, that are still hurting from that experience because you have not recovered. Now, why have you not recovered is because a lot of you, if you remember what happened before the, the, the 2000 fall, was that you had the S&P 500 and then a lot of technology stocks had been on a run for so long that people started thinking that we are, I still remember people talking about a new paradigm, how we were, you know, valuations of companies, that the traditional 15 price-to-earnings ratio was worthless because now companies were so much more efficient, so much more growth was headed their way that uh, a reasonable price-to-earnings ratio might be 40, 50. There was even companies out there trading at several hundred dollars um, you know, their price was $700 over several, several hundred times their actual earnings, which is just outrageous to think that this was sustainable for an extended period of time uh, to, to have these things. I, I even remember, if y'all remember that um, that web grocery store, it was Webban, what was it, was it Webban or um, I'm slaughtered, I'm trying to remember, I, if I would have been one of the smart guys, I'd have bought some of those um, shares so I could hung up on my wall for all the the companies the the tele you know the 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 dot com companies that went under. But I still remember the the web van. I think that I think it was web banner. It was anyway. It was an online grocery store had more market capitalization than Kroger, Publix, and all the other big public grocery stores combined. And, and you know, counting the real estate and everything else. And here you had really a company that had nothing except for a business concept. And, and and people went just gaga over the whole thought that they that had dot com after their name. Um, very interesting. But these are things just like I, I mentioned earlier on the the cycle of market emotions. Items do get oversold. So if we talk about and this is why you know a lot of people say, well, Brian, wait a minute. Why should I stay in the market when you just told me that from two thousand to two thousand two was the longest bear market since World War Two? 
It was, you know, 929 days. The market lost 49%. Why in the world would I want to stay in that market? I'd rather just sit on the sidelines over here in cash, let this pass, and then get in. This is this is why, and this is the reason. Let me break this into two parts. Is because now, if you're a person that's retired, already retired, you might need to go look at your asset allocation to 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 evaluate if your goals match up to what you're doing with your money. But for everybody else who's in their thirty, you know, twenties, thirties, forties, you need to calm down. And just sit back and relax because this is why you need to, to hang in there. You've got time for this recovery, and the recovery will occur. You've got time for the recovery because just and you want to hang in there and, and just try to make sure your diversified portfolio is protecting you because um, you're going to be okay. Because what happens is is that markets, as they get oversold, the recovery is huge. Um, and, and let me give you some facts. And I know, you know, I put an article that I've got out there on the internet that I had published back during the darkest times, and I mentioned it in previous podcasts. It's an article titled "What You Should Know in an Uncertain Market." It was published by a local Metro Atlanta newspaper on Thursday, October third of two thousand two. And you can go click on the link at moneyguy.com if you want to see it. And what was, and what's very interesting about that date is that within six days of that date that I published that article, and I published that article because I was getting calls from clients and prospects that they were freaking out about how bad the market was in October of 2002. But if I would have only known that I could have said, hey, in six days, we're going to be at the run of a lifetime here. So just hang in there. But, you know, nobody knows that. You don't know that you're about to hit a recovery. Because remember, I was at the point and didn't even realize at the point of maximum financial opportunity because everybody was in the depression mode about the investing. So when I wrote this article of what you should know in an uncertain market in October 3rd of 2002, we were within six days of reaching the dead bottom of that longest bear market since World War II. Um, so what happened is the S&P 500 bottomed out at 776 points. Um, and the article I referenced on average markets rise by 9.8% one month af- after they reached the bottom of a bear market. Furthermore, if you expand that same period to one year from the bottom of a bear market, the stock market historically rise by 26.2%. And over, the, uh, over that following 12-month period, so we've now had five years to go back and look at these numbers to see how true they held up. And I think you're going to be surprised to hear um, that we went from October 9th, 2002 to, to November 8th, that first month of recovery, the market returned, the S&P 500 returned 15%. From October 9th, 2002 through October 8th of 2003, the first 12 months after it hit the dead bottom, the market returned an outsized 33%. So we even blew out those historical averages I gave you of 9.8 and 26.2% quite substantially. And that's why you want to hang in there. Because if you're doing the right thing with your portfolio, hopefully you've only got a third to half of the volatility of the broad markets. And then when it comes back, hopefully you're recapturing two-thirds to three-quarters of the upside. That's the power of diversification is if you can mitigate the volatility, so you're only losing that third to a half of the, of the market, but then you're capturing two-thirds to three-quarters of the upside, that's a winning proposition. That, that's what you want to get into. That's what's very, very important to making sure you're successful in the long term. 
And, and that's what I want to remind you is so important. And um, I also put on here a link. My partner, Bill Cleveland, as I've told you all in the past, he's the smart one of the two. I'm the, just the loud one that talks more. Um, he, he had a, a, an article published March 7, 2008, so not only a few weeks ago. And he's, he's the money doctor. He does a, a monthly column. Um, for for this publication out there, and in his title, and I've got a link on it on MoneyGuy.com as well. It's called "Weathering the Storm in Market in Volatile Markets." And what I thought was very interesting that Bill focused on was, you know, how we really do have 24-hour news access now, and it's gotten where things are so negative. And I think it's because the media has recognized that fear and negativity sells much easier than happy-go-lucky fun stories. And, and I'll give you—I know this is probably not a, a you know a completely accurate. Uh, analogy, but it's still worthwhile noting. I've told many of you guys, I serve on the local school board down here. We're the seventh school, seventh biggest school system in the state of Georgia. We may, we have about forty to forty two thousand students, depending upon where where the growth rate is. Um, but we're we're big. We're a big school system, and I thought it was very interesting. We have quite a few high schools in the county, and we have what what's called a star student breakfast, where the students from all the high schools that have the highest SAT scores at each of the high schools. We have a big breakfast that's put on by the Chamber of Commerce for the county I'm in. And it's just it's one of my top two favorite events working with the school system every year because you really get these kids all get to get up there and give a speech, talk about what they want to do in life. And there's something very exciting about seeing people that have so much potential get up there and see what they want to do with their life, to kind of see them before they actually turn into something and see all that optimism and see where they are with things. And, and just it's just very re- refreshing. So I, I love going to this event, but it was very intriguing to me. How much media do you think was there at that function? Not one person from the local newspaper, not one person from the metro newspaper, not one person from any of the local radio stations, nobody, not a zip. So it was very interesting, something so positive, we had no representation whatsoever. Now, our neighbors to the north, Clayton County, their school board is actually facing the, chan- the possibility that they might lose accreditation because there's all kind of scandals going on. Guess how many uh, you know, newspaper crews, TV crews, and everybody else shows up nightly at their board meetings and everything else. You cannot tell me the media has not recognized that it's much more profitable to sell bad news than it is to sell the good news that's out there. And they're, they're, going, they're going to play that upon you as well. So just because the market's down 10, 11, 12% doesn't mean you have to be down that. And very likely you probably not. If you've listened to the advice of the Money Guy show and you've gone and listened to some of these asset allocation shows I've done in the past, you're going to be okay. I, I mean, I've looked at the performance of our clients. We're okay. It's just trying to keep my clients from freaking out and making that worst decision and selling it at the wrong time. By the way, one quick thing before I talk about this Barron's article and we close out the show is that I noticed on iTunes that only my most recent shows are showing up, like the last four or five. If you're new to the show and you want to go check out some of these asset allocation shows and some other topics on investing, you don't have to. You can actually go to the Money Guy site directly, MoneyGuy.com, and all we have every one of our shows we've ever done. For the last over, I mean, it's going on two and a half years now. You can go download all of them. And I've tried to cover about anything and everything out there. So go through the website and try to figure out, you know, and you can download the shows directly from the website too. So go out there and, you know, scroll through the, the, the show notes and you can see where you can play them either right there on the website or you can download it. Because I do want you guys to use the website as a resource to help you through these dark times so you can make the right decisions. Now, there's an article 
that I've linked on the website too called, it was written on Barron's Online. It's called Avoid the Most Common and Costliest Mistakes in Retirement. And it was written by Karen Hube. Um, and Karen had, had some good points, and she interviewed some interesting people. And I thought it was quite... It, it was pretty nice what she had put together because it's a lot of what we've just talked about in this show. Bottom line, simply by making three of the most common errors, and those three com- most common errors are failing to diversify wisely. Check. We've talked about that today. Trying to time the market and overpaying on investment expenses. You would have missed. So that was two and three. Number two was trying to time the market. Number three was overpaying on investment expenses. You would have missed out on $375,000 of gains on a $1 million portfolio. Now, I know not everybody out there has a $1 million portfolio, but if you break that down into simple terms, over a 10-year period ended January of 2008. So this even encompasses the bad fourth quarter that we had in 2007 and then the dreadful month we had in January. You would have, um, if you would have broken those three cardinal things there by, you know, failing to diversify, trying to time the market, and three, overpaying on your investment expenses, you'd have lost 37%. So don't take out the million dollars. If you think that's an unrealistic goal for where you are in life right now, just recognize that you would have lost 37.5% of your gains that you could have over the last 10 years if you're breaking it out that way. Moving on, you know, and, and I want to go into each one of these topics separately. You know, those three costly mistakes, because she talks about neglecting asset allocation. I thought this was a very interesting thing that she went into. Practically all investors would agree that they want the best returns and the lowest possible risk. But when it comes to setting up a portfolio to deliver on that promise, many investors don't go the distance, and they pay dearly for it. And um, she goes on to cite, according to a 2007 survey of 401k assets, by the Profit Sharing and 401k Council of, America, Council of America, the average investor holds some 25% of 401k assets in his own company stock. Now, I've been there, done that with, um, I used to manage um, some portfolios for some Lucent managers. Lucent, if you remember, was a company headquartered here in Atlanta. Um, worked with quite a few of their executives uh, back at a previous firm I worked at. And, you know, everybody thought Lucent was going to be great forever. But, you know, you saw when the dot-com boom ha- happened, it, it got dr- Lucent got brought down with a lot of the other telecom, you know, the, the technology companies that are out there. And a lot of those executives lost about everything they owned because they just wouldn't diversify. They were, they were emotionally as well as politically. It, you know, a lot of companies po- have political structures where they, they discourage their, their employees from diversifying. I think that's slowly starting to change or hopefully quickly starting to change because of some of the things going on. So I've seen these executives that have had over 25% of their assets of their 401k and company stock that have been devastated. Let's talk about something even more recently. What about Bear Stearns last week? What if you had woken up, you had, you know, $70 a share, you know, your Bear Stearns, you had, you know, 25% of your 401k in that in that investment, and then you wake up the following week and it's worth $2 a share? You go from having you know hundreds of thousands of dollars down to less than ten thousand dollars in your in your four hundred one k. That's disgusting. You've already got enough risk with the company you're working with. I mean, you've got your employment risk, your wage risk, what your earning power is is tied to this company. Why would you want your future financial independence tied to them as well? You need to diversify away from that. So be careful with that twenty five percent or more in your personal employers you know, public stock. I wouldn't recommend recommend going any higher than probably 5%, 10% 
only if you got, I mean, you've got to have, be working for a really great company to go above that 5%, uh, you know, guideline that I like to tell people. Um, beyond that, at least a third of assets are in domestic stocks if you look at 401ks. Less than 8% of retirement plan assets in the United States are in, are in international funds, which, I, you know, as you've seen with the falling dollar, you, you're much better off recently having some allocation in international because on, on the world marketplace, you know, we're not doing as great because <laughs> we're getting killed out there on the dollar. So international is a way, if you go out there and buy international holdings, that you can offset some of that falling dollar exposure. Um, and fewer than 1% of all 401k assets out there are even in diversified asset classes like real estate. I thought that was very interesting as well. I know real estate's become a cuss word, but still not a bad idea to have all kind of asset classes represented in your 401k. Let's talk about that second mistake, timing the market. Investors have such a dismal record of being able to time the market that mutual flow, mutual flow inflows and outflows appear to be contrary indicators of which way the market is headed. And, and you know, and there's a professor from um, Santa Clara University in California that goes on to state, and his name is um, Meyer Statement. It says it's not the perfect idiot forecast. He says, but it's close. Ideally, of course, you would want to sell your holdings when the prices are high and poised to drop and buy stocks on sell right before run-up in values. But over the past decade, investors have done the exact opposite. The month with the biggest ever net inflows of assets into stock mutual funds occurred in February of 2000. We talked about that earlier, which was the doorstep of one of the worst declines in history. You go on, and they they interviewed um, Ernie... Akram, who's the chief investment strategist at Russell Investments, the biggest outflows were also poorly timed. Some of the biggest occurred in the months leading up to October of 2002 when the market hit bottom. Remember what I told you? I had The reason I even wrote that column in October of 2002 is because I got a ton of calls from my clients and prospects that said they didn't want to have anything to do with the equity markets, the stock market. It was the peak opportunity, you know, or as, as, as that thing, as my, um, the cycle of market emotions puts it, the point of maximum financial opportunity, you've got to think about these things. The kind of behavior of getting excited about good news and scared after bad news causes many investors to give up between two and a half to three percentage points a year, according to um, Ernie, who, uh, who I've already mentioned was the chief investment strategist at Russell Investments. So quite interesting. The third thing it talks about... Um, Oh, let me give you one more thing about market timing. It says, another kind of market timing is more passive, yet still destructive. It's simply to stop feeding more money into your investments and rockier times. And I think there's a lot of people out there probably right now feeling that, that temptation to stop investing. Don't do it, because consider this. According to a 2007 study by Dalbar, and you all have heard me, I've, I've mentioned their research in the past, a mutual fund research firm, if you had invested $10,000 in the S&P 500 index over 20 years through December of 2006, just in a, in a pattern that matches actual behavior of mutual fund investors during that period, you would have ended up with a total of about $33,252. So, but if, however, you had had a systematic investment plan that took the $10,000 in equal increments over the 20-year periods, meaning you're investing monthly, um, through good times and bad, you would have ended up with $42,877. The study found that even if you choose a fund that captured only 75, 75% of the S&P 500's return, by dollar cost averaging, you would still end up with more than if you had, had sporadically um, invested in the S&P 500. The, the key thing I want you to take from that stat is that you would have ended up with 29% more money 
if you just bought every month versus trying to time the market by going in when you think things are good or are going out when you think things are scary because as you've heard from the research we typically do the exact opposite we usually sell high I mean, we sell low, I should say, and then we buy high because we buy when the, when the news is good, you know, and then, and then as soon as it gets bad, we're scared to death to buy anything, which is usually the bargains out there. Um, the last thing that it mentions in this article, and then we're going to close up the show, is paying too much. It says, consider this, the S&P 500 index funds, while the performance of these funds is practically identical, given that they mirror the same index, expenses all over the map, some funds charge no load, that's like your vanguards and your fidelities, some have no load but do have a so-called 12B1 fee, that's another back-end type um, commission payment fee, which is an operating expense, and yet others, others have both a load and a 12B1 fee. A 2006 study by Zero Alpha Group, um, found that if you invested $10,000 in these funds for 20 years, meaning an S&P 500 fund over 20 years, and earned an average annual 10% gain, not unrealistic, it said it found that the average investor would have paid a difference of, in the lower cost funds, $2,582, and then in the 12B1 fees, they would have paid 3744 and then in the commission and the 12B1, you'd have paid $7,600. So there's a 5000 an $18 difference on a $10,000 investment over a 20-year period that you would have paid. That's money you could have earned additional you know, earnings on that you'd have had for retirement, you'd have had for financial independence. So pay attention to the fees you're paying in these mutual funds. It is very important to watch those three things that are mentioned in this article. You want to make sure you're diversified. You want to make sure you're not getting crazy with the timing because we all know that we're, we're inadequate. We're, we're very emotional beings. So we need to, you know, emotion seems to, to trump the analytical side of us. So just take that out. Have a good systematic plan. Stick to the plan. Know what you're doing with, you know, think about it in a logical standpoint, analytically what your goals are, how long you have to retirement, you know, how much you're going to need in retirement, and put together a plan and stick to it. Don't try to time. And then third, course watch the expenses that you're paying out there so i hope that you've you've you know been able to to walk away from that listen to this podcast today and know that it's not so bad that you should just give up because you're going to be okay so there's still probably some of you out there go brian this is pretty bad though what what are we going to do if this thing never recovers because there's always people out there that think throughout history that this is the worst of times and that we're never going to recover let me go ahead and put that that discussion to a close if you think that the economy will not recover because now maybe we're more of a global marketplace or maybe we're in a new paradigm where the, the U.S. economy is just not competitive anymore, we've got much bigger problems in the stock market. What is the engine for this economy? What drives this country? What pays the taxes that, that pays for all you know your police officers, that pays for the in- infrastructure? It is the small business owners, it's the Fortune 500 companies, it's the, it's the economy as a whole working together, and you've got to count on the innovation of business owners and the desire to make more profit is going to work over the long term. You also have the ability of the government to change the rule book at any point in time. They're showing that. You know, as of me recording this podcast, they have not cut the rates for today, but as anticipated today, they're going to drop rates significantly. Um, the government can change the rule book at any point in time. They can, you know, change tax policy. They can cut interest rates. They can do anything they want. There is no limit to what they can do. And you know, everything you have, like your real estate, everything you own, is is really tied to the health and the security of our government. 
And if our economy is not going to work, if we're done, if capitalism does not work in the United States anymore, who cares what's going on with your stock portfolio? Because you need to go find an island out in the Caribbean. You need to go find some other place because it's just not going to work anymore. So I say that that argument is is just it's a it's a void argument because there's no positive, there's nothing you know, there's no side plan to it for the average person. The only people that might be able to take that into account is if you have a net worth over five to ten million dollars. Maybe you want to go put a million dollars, you know, outside the United States to protect you from that danger. But for the average investor out there, don't worry about that type of stuff. That's noise. That's going to be the stuff that gets in your head and causes you not to make the right decisions that will have you when you get to that 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 age of sixty to sixty five, um, and, and say, wait a minute, why don't I have enough money for retirement? It's because you you, you talked yourself out of it, and, and you can't let those those emotional decisions get the best of you and keep you from reaching the true peace of mind that comes from financial independence. So thanks for, so much for listening. I will go ahead and tell you guys, I'm going to be on vacation. Uh, well, it's not really. I'm taking an extended weekend. It's too busy to take a full vacation. I'm taking an extended weekend at the end of this week, but I've got another show in the can for next week that I will be putting out, out hopefully Monday or Tuesday of next week. It's just the show notes might be a little tight, um, you know, not as not as as deep as an in-depth as I've done in the past. But thanks so much for your help. Thanks so much for supporting the show, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. This is your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>